Today's guest is Ahmed Diddin, journalist, documentary filmmaker. At Meta or Instagram, there's just really no explanation for the double standard. If you say Palestinians should be free from the river to the sea, you're inciting violence, but we're going to change your hate speech policies so that I can call for the assassination of Russian people, and that's all good. Almost at every major media company that I worked, there was overt censorship. I have no regrets that I spoke very boldly and bluntly about apartheid and the occupation in Israel at a young age, ended up losing really incredible opportunities or platforms because I'm critical of Israel. If you do commit your entire life to this, then you also have yeah. to pay your bills. So yeah. then there becomes this notion of, I am doing what I love, but at the same time, I'm conflicted because I also need to do what makes money. And that's I why we do have to take an ad break. This ad is brought to you by the <laughs> Russian government, okay? <laughs> They're not doing well. Hello and welcome to episode 49 of the Palestine Pod, the weekly podcast where we break down the latest headlines dealing with Palestine from all over the world and bring you stories, commentary, and interviews with the aim of supporting the Palestinian struggle for justice and equal rights. I'm one of your hosts, Lara E. You might know me from Instagram as at Gazan Girl, and I'm joined by my co-host, Mikey B. What's up, y'all? Mikey B on TikTok, Michael Scherzer on Instagram, and you can call me Mikey Intifada if you've been screaming for sanctions against Russia, but you're still mad about Ben and Jerry's. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so before we get into today's episode, please like, comment, subscribe if you hang out with us on YouTube. If you're listening on a podcast app, subscribe and leave a review. As always, you can find our full episodes and sources on palestinepod.com. And if you want to get involved in the conversation, feel free to reach out to us at palestinepod at gmail.com and give us a follow on Instagram at the palestinepod. We're also going strong on Patreon, so if you love the Palestine Pod and you want to support this project, join our Patreon, where you get early access to the Palestine Pod episodes and an additional one to two podcasts per week, including our latest creation, the Patreon Pod. It's a little more laid back. We talk politics, pop culture, and get a little more personal with Michael and myself. We're also hosting our monthly Zoom happy hours for our Patreon subscribers only, so really exciting stuff. Check us out on patreon.com slash palestinepod. Today's guest is Ahmed Diddin. Ahmed is a journalist, documentary filmmaker, producer, and you may have recognized him as a GQ cover model. Ahmed, welcome to the Palestine Pod. Thanks. It feels like home. <laughs> That's great. That's like probably the coolest thing anyone said joining us. <laughs> totally. No, really, it does. It feels great. Happy to be here. It also is your home, right? Behind you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's, uh, pretty good stuff. So, Ahmed, you're super, I don't want to call you, I mean, you do so many things and I don't want to, but you have also a very active presence on social media and you, I mean, I share so much of your stuff. How do you find the time to be everywhere? I mean, what is it like, what, what are your projects right now and how does social media fit into that? That's a great question. A little too self-reflective. Now, now I'm going to have to make drastic life changes. People ask me that sometimes, like, how are you everywhere on this issue and that issue? And I really feel the opposite. I have been lucky to not be doing the nine to five grind for a while now because of COVID. And so I'm learning how to manage my time better. But yeah, I'm, I'm working full time sort of on a investigative doc. It's been a year and a half and it's been really time consuming, but then it's in chunks. So yeah, I just, I feel like sometimes what happens to answer your question more aptly is that I just, something happens in the world somewhere 
And I just get very fixated on it because it has some sort of compelling or very engaging, not just because it's like, you know, a war or some sort of thing that demands your attention. But, you know, when things pluck at my heartstrings, like it's hard to not become a little too voluble. Like I talk too too much sometimes. I'm a, <laughs> and it's dangerous when you have all these apps that you can just talk into. Yeah. So you're working on a documentary. Can you share a little bit more what it's about? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So I'm working on a documentary, which is kind of like my main thing. It's going to end in a couple months. It's in the region. It's in the Arab world. And it's about a marginalized community. I'm being intentionally vague, mostly for security reasons, quite frankly, because it's, it's pretty dangerous work that we're doing. I don't know if dangerous is the right word. That makes me sound like some, you know, like, it's, it's just very sensitive work. And I want to make sure I don't jeopardize anybody's livelihood or, or well-being. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's about a marginalized community, surprise, surprise, people who are uh, misrepresented, who are demonized, who are often spoken about but not given a voice. And it's not just about them in general. It's just we found some incredible characters that really bring to light this community in a way that I think hopefully will be super impactful. It's a project that will end. And other than that, I've been doing a lot of kind of more personal things, like writing a, uh, working on writing a, a memoir. Oh, wow. I know it sounds okay. very like, oh, I'm writing a memoir all about <laughs> me. Uh, whenever I bring it up, it's it, it's not a memoir as much as it's like a manifesto based on my life. On my life. I don't know manifesto. that manifesto is the better word. You know, I feel like memoir is better. Manifesto <laughs> makes memoir. it sounds like you got a vendetta, Political. you know, like someone's going to pay. I do, but it's it's against, I think I'm going to pay. I think it's a vendetta <laughs> against myself. No, it's just, an, you know, post-COVID, I think it's been really easy a lot easier for a lot of us to kind of take stock of like our lives and you yeah. know the way we live them and our choices and so it's just an opportunity to reflect maybe it'll never get published but it's been it's been a really fun process are you self-producing or are you working with a network or anything on the documentary no so yeah this doc is actually with a big kind of major broadcaster so it's, okay. it might get a lot of eyes but i'm working as a contractor like it's not a, a full-time job which has been really a blessing in disguise the last few years. I've learned that even though it comes with a lot of like sacrifice, it's it's sometimes really empowering to be kind of in charge, more in charge uh, of, yes. your, of your voice, whatever you do. Well, because you started out, I mean, for a while people saw you with Al Jazeera, right? And yeah. you've been attached to other networks as well. Yeah. And so now you're, you know, it, it seems like you're kind of like trying to like pave your own way and your own sort of identity yeah. without that. Yeah. Yeah. It, I don't even know that it's going to be mostly in the traditional journalistic role. What's been really exciting to me really is just exploring new things. I, I won't claim that like I've found like a new career path, but I've definitely found things that entertain me and engage me and inspire me and that I'm, I'm kind of going to stick to for a while and see what happens. And the Ahmed Adin podcast, where's that at? <laughs> yeah, that, that I heard you were starting why, a podcast. No, that's why I told you it's incredible that you've done 50 episodes in a year. This is also not my day job. So it's like, there's that too. 
Yeah. I have a nine to five. Like it's like, she was like, she was like, you may think it's impressive, but it's actually more impressive than you think. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I've actually been doing way more than just what you know about. (laughs) No. And I'll be, I'll I'll be honest. Like, I think that's, that's a real testament to, I mean, I could have asked you the same question. Like I see you tweet everywhere. You have a whole like responsibility in your personal life that I, I, I think I don't have. Part of the answer is that Michael is really good at maintaining our social media presence and he doesn't have a day job. He has a night job as working as a comedian. So he like, I'm very blessed to be with a co-host that invests as much time as he does into this project because it is a passion project. It's not, you know, this is not profitable. Like I, (laughs) I was saying we're bleeding cash. (laughs) We're bleeding cash. cash. No, but, but that's, but that's, I think that's all the more noble. I mean, just to answer your question, the podcast turned into three different podcasts and I recorded this incredible content. A lot of it Palestine related or focused with Jordan Nassad and like all these really kind of these people with very complicated relationships to Israel and Palestine. Mm-hmm. And I just chose not to, I think I, I want to use the excuse of perfectionist, but maybe a lack of conviction and focus made me want to press the brakes. Okay, so we're never going to see that. No, but there'll be another version. I'm really in, I'm really serious when I say I'm inspired by people like you who say it's not about the money, but you're just doing it because it is a passion project. And it's obviously something you enjoy or you wouldn't be doing it, I'm assuming. Sure. Well, yeah. I mean, there's also a luxury in that too, right? Journalism isn't my day job, so I can yeah. make this a passion project. I think I think that's where it gets tricky because if you do commit your entire life to this, then you also have yeah. to pay your bills. So yeah. then there becomes this notion of I am doing what I love, but at the same time I'm conflicted yeah. because I also need to do what makes money through what I love. Well, and then it's really tricky because then you pick projects based on what earns, yeah. right? Yeah, And that's I why definitely... we do actually have to take an ad break. This ad is brought to you by the <laughs> Russian government, okay? <laughs> They're not doing well. <laughs> no, yeah. I don't know. I don't know what to say other than I think it's amazing when people talk about this, let alone any podcast, but this issue. Because I think it also does, at least in my field, come with a cost inherently baked Of course. In. You know, there are many times in my career, I think, where I chose relative to then. Like now, the terminology that I use and I think the way in which I speak about this issue is maybe more bold or more blunt than it's ever been. I've but totally that noticed that. I've totally yeah. And, yeah. and 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 I'm not going to lie about the fact that doesn't mean that I was consciously censoring myself before, but I think it was just a realistic balance in terms of being able to actually have a foot in the door and to have a microphone because it, back then, if you use certain terms that now at least were sort of kind of allowed to use, you'd be written off of any sort of media endorsed platform. And yeah, so you know all about it. So yeah, let's let's explore that a little bit further. I mean, h- how do you feel that the language has developed? What are you? What do you feel like you're able to say now? And you know, maybe you can also, if if you think of something, recall sort of instances where you were sort of re- requ- I don't want to say required, but instances where you chose mm-hmm. to narrate a story in a different way and yeah. Where today, possibly, if you had to retell the story, you would have done so yeah. from a different angle or using different words. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a good question. I think 
I think the conversation has shifted dramatically in the Western world, specifically in the US. I say dramatically not to suggest it's shifted a whole bunch, but it's shifted in a dramatic way. I say that because there was a time not so long ago at the beginning of my career, I was working at the New York Times and other sort of like even PBS and other places where even the term occupation was not just controversial, but but oftentimes not tolerated, erased. And I think the visibility that we've seen thanks to social media, even despite the censorship, but like the Al-Kurd twins and so many other young Palestinians, my age and younger, but I, I want to focus on the young, young ones, because they, I think, really through the intersectional re resistance, through the Black Lives Matter sort of solidarity and beyond, even the Me Too movement, the perception that minorities and marginalized people were being attacked, I think was an opportunity for a lot of people to kind of brush up on, you know, beyond the woke sort of you know, moment, if you will. And I just noticed that terms started shifting. And when I, when I saw sort of some people be very brave, and after having maybe been out of the media world for a while, I have no regrets that I spoke maybe very boldly and bluntly about apartheid and occupation in Israel at a young age as an opinion writer, as a journalist, on TV, as an anchor in many facilities, on stages, at panels. And I think that drew attention to me in a positive sense in some ways, but it definitely drew a lot of negativity. But I never... I never avoided saying, speaking the truth. I think consciously, I think what it was is there was just, as I said, an awareness of where the lines were. But yeah, I definitely, <laughs> definitely flirted around those lines. And as I mentioned, like with CNN and other big companies ended up losing really incredible opportunities or platforms because I'm critical of Israel. But, but these terms are like <laughs> ethnic displacement, yeah. uh, ethnic cleansing, apartheid, those were not anywhere on the table, even in the human rights constructs and spaces. If they were used, they were very polarizing. And yeah, I think you're seeing a whole generation of, of Americans and beyond. It's sad that I, I wouldn't say the same about the Arab world. That's a whole nother conversation. But definitely in the US, with how polarized things are, and for so many reasons, like I said, it's been really refreshing to see the shift take place. And just the, the way in which people are recognizing and calling out double standards. I've, I've seen it in your content. I think it's just, yeah, Rashida Tlaib, like there's so many different factors. I think visibility is so important. That's why it's like, you know, I'm a journalist. I happen to be originally Palestinian, but you're starting to see people speak out about Palestine who, who aren't as connected to the identity. And I think it's when that happens more and more, it's a really positive sign. Yeah. Hey, you know who still hasn't used the word apartheid? The New York Times. All right. Yeah, that's true. I've, I'll say, for example, that almost at every major media company that I worked, there was overt censorship as well as subtle censorship, which is like can be compounded by self-censorship. or, And it was never explicitly explained. And that's what was really frustrating. And, and part of why I chose to leave Vice when I did was just out of frustration with that reality. It wasn't to be some hero and, oh, I'm sacrificing this great, you know, gig uh, because I want to stand up for what's right in Palestine. No, it's like you're censoring my work. You're, you're both sizing things. You're eliminating settlements, which are such a big part of this. And when I, I challenge you as to why... It's just deflect, deflect, deflect. And, and so it's, it's hard for me to work in that kind of an environment and imagine that I'm going to be doing anything productive. 
Vice was like, here's an in-depth look at seven sex clubs in Israel. It's like, all right, we get it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I will, I will say that, that they've made some pretty hard-hitting stuff on Israel and Palestine, but they also censored the hell out of my dog. And so yeah. it is what it is. Yeah, I mean, if you're trying to erase settlements, that's a pretty big part of the problem. It's like, how can you even be doing your job as a journalist to represent the reality. We stumbled upon this neighborhood in Silwan and we were going with like some guy who represented like the organizations that, that would kick Palestinian families out and go through the courts and the way they did it. And it was very violent. We stumbled upon this scene that was like of Hollywood epic proportions, like a mother with her daughter. She just so happened to be still legally allowed to be in the house, but the three other generations in this home, the Anab family, were kicked out. So they're outside. The mother's coming home from school. The Swedish settlers are with their guns in their pockets, like throwing the kids' toys out. It starts pouring down with rain. Like, honestly, like there are some days where like, I think back of all the places I've been in the field as a reporter, and that was for a lot of reasons, but, but it was just like this incredible microcosm of the crisis in humanity, complicity, and you know, the injustice of it all. And it was right there in front of us. Like if we would have spent a lot of money to recreate that in like a short film or a film, we wouldn't have been able to create that scene. And so not only for that scene to have been cut, but it was edited, it was sent to HBO, they loved it, the feedback was great, but then all of a sudden that entire scene disappears, and then the VO, I don't want to harp on Vice, this is like... No, oh, let's talk good. about it. No, no, but, but like, you know, as a, as a, in kind of like at a pivotal moment in my career, to be told, yo, dude, the settlements, and this is not a joke, this is verbatim what was said, dude, the settlements are like crazy. Like, that's why we took the scene out. Cause like some people say they're okay. And so people just think like, they're like totally, like it was very uh, reductive thinking. Like there was, and it was very convenient, like excuses. Oh, the settlements are crazy. Like, okay, what has Bias ever published? That's not crazy. Like, isn't that the guiding editorial policy? Yeah, but, right. But, 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 also but, you know, real but, quick, who was providing feedback? My drug dealer? <laughs> yeah. Dude. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you. Um, it wasn't everyone, but there was like one editor in particular who like when I confronted him and a couple others. And then like, you know, I ended up recording some lines in VO, but then like changing it and they ended up using lines that they had written rather than I had written. And it's like my voice and my name at the end. It's not about my brand or like I wish I had given enough thought to my brand to like protect it. But it was more just it was more just like my own sense of like what's right or wrong and like why I'm a journalist and like what I'm trying to accomplish. And like for me, it's not about being a journalist or like having a huge paying gig. Otherwise, I probably wouldn't be joining you from here. I'd be in like some flashy studio. But but the point is, there is liberation in not being beholden to these power structures that insist on um, erasing, uh, you know, the Palestinian struggle for dignity and justice. And it's it's exhausting work, as you guys know. But that's why it's funner when it's a podcast and like we can be more real about it. Yeah. So let me ask you this. Do you feel a little bit like, a sigh of relief now that the conversation has shifted so much. I mean, Michael and I 
literally every week we talk about that week's report that declares that Israel's an apartheid yeah. state. And, there, yeah. and, and and there's always like, there's a new one every week, you know? Yeah. Like the latest one is the UN special rapporteur that was like, yeah, it's apartheid. Yeah. And, you know, obviously before that we had Beit Salem, Human Rights Watch. We had mm-hmm. the Harvard uh, Law Clinic. We mm-hmm. had, you know, even going back as far as Jimmy Carter, you know, mm-hmm. the amnesty report. I mean, it's like, how many yeah. more reports do we need? But also because there's like this sort of avalanche of like people mm-hmm. coming out and saying, no, no, no it's apartheid. Yeah. You feel like sort of relieved that now you can kind of yeah. maybe, I, maybe I, 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 be I, I more comfortable what, in. Yeah. I, I think, I think in some ways what you just described and this momentum and amnesty coming in and, you know, a lot of this on the back of a lot of Palestinian human rights organizations sure. as well as B'Tselem, you know, and I'm not saying that just to give them a shout out, but what I'm saying is change really comes best from within. And like, you know, now that you're starting to see other people echoing what, what Palestinian human rights organizations and others have been saying for a really long time, um, I think it does change the calculus. And I think, on, on the flip side, it does make it all the more contentious because it just triggers this. Like, you know, we've seen already like Israel's defense being like, why are you singling out Israel? Like, why are you not criticizing China? You know, you don't see anyone in the world being like, why are Ukrainians singling out Russia? Like, right. you know, like, 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 it, you know, for sure. Calling it, calling Israel an apartheid state is really about identifying a perpetrator of systemic human rights violations that match the description of apartheid. And people are like, oh, but it's not exactly like South Africa. So it's not apartheid or it's, you know, and 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 this what about is, um, it's like, it is a lot more simple than that. You know, if you look at Amnesty's report and all these others, you know, that happens kind of in cycles. You know, if you violate international law, if you deny human rights, you should be held accountable, especially if you do it under imposing a system of apartheid. A hundred percent. And two things in response to that. It matters because the U.S. funds it. The U.S. funds occupation and apartheid in Palestine through the Israeli government and entity. And it also matters because we're Palestinian. So obviously we're going to talk about the thing that is depriving us and our people of rights. Mm -hmm. That's what's relevant to us. Also, we spoke to Nelson Mandela's grandson and he said it was an apartheid. So you know, I would take that over like 14-year-old troll accounts on the internet. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I honestly think that, you know, we're, we're in a weird moment where <laughs> it's impossible for anyone who knows the basics about what's happening in Israel and Palestine to be looking at what's happening between Russia and Ukraine, which is very different, but also very similar, and not come to the conclusion that you know, there is an insane, and you guys have remarked about it, just in terms of like the boycott divestment sanctions movement, just how much how much of a knee-jerk reaction there is and how much plotting there is to, to make that a non-starter when talking about Israel and Palestine. But the whole world, the business community, there's like a cultural, economic, political boycott on Russia. Like people are lining up, falling over themselves, you know, to, to fall in line with this. And it's really, I think, made it that much harder to ignore sort of when the U.S. and the world kind of chooses to just not pay attention because that's not helping anybody, right? And so that's why I think this this amnesty move, it's just the beginning, but I think the momentum, I think there's reason to be hopeful, cautiously hopeful, but hopeful. 
Yeah, I know people who were like, dude, we got to sanction Russia in SWIFT. And it's like, you don't even have a bank account. What are you talking about? <laughs> Where did you learn yeah. this? Yeah, that's it's 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 weird, right? It's wild how things become just part of the like Friendly, you, like you deliver you deliver for Uber Eats, bro. This is not your fight. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. And like and like what's the purpose? Like why these sanctions on Russia? Why is it so in vogue? Is it really about the egregious human rights violations, which Russia is committing and they've been committing in Syria and throughout the world and, you know, and yeah. the U.S. is committed. But 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 is it about human rights or is it just about, oh, it's so convenient because this is really about Western hegemony and this really serves this narrative of like the West and Russia and authoritarianism. But like, you know, in a lot of ways, the world feels like it's coming undone in a lot of different ways. And I think Israel's role in trying to like balance you know, supporting Ukraine, but also completely supporting Russia and, and Putin's inner circle is also very hard to ignore for anyone who's been yes. you know, kind of looking at Israel's positioning in the world. It's it's, it's interesting. So I'm, I'm really happy that you brought that up because that's one of the things I wanted to chat with you about because you've been tweeting mm -hmm. and posting about this yeah. quite a bit. Mm -hmm. And I think it's I think it's really interesting because you're seeing you know what was it a U.S. Congressperson come out mm -hmm. and say that we should sanction Israel for not taking a harder stance yeah. on Russia. Hey, we'll take yeah. the sanctions where we can get them. Fuck it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I mean I I just think it's it's been wild to witness the president of Ukraine you know saying to the Israeli. Parliament, the threat we face is the same for us yes. and for you. It's the destruction of a people and even a name. I want you to think about this while he's complaining. And, you know, we've seen, you know, Ukrainian officials reject calls from Israel just this past week. We just saw news today that Israel, you know, is selling their Pegasus spyware, which like can, you know, make any phone completely accessible to you and all the data on that phone. Oh, and our listeners are familiar with spyware. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Right. Like the most powerful cybersecurity tool. Um, they're not giving it to Ukraine because they, you know, Russia found out and they're trying to protect Russia, Russian targets from Ukraine and Estonia. But they're selling it to like the UAE and Saudi. So, you know, but also they're supposed to be the mediators of peace talks between Ukraine and Russia. Right. Israel is supposed to be like the guy that's, like, you know, they were talking right. about Bennett, like trying to be the mediator between everyone. And it's, it's, it's just mm -hmm. a very awkward positioning to... Totally, totally. You don't even know what their role is. I mean... Yeah, and I, I think like a leader of a people, like let's look at it like macro, like a leader of a people under occupation asking the leaders of a government that's been occupying another people for 74 years, like why aren't you helping us? To me, it's just the ultimate display of like selective empathy for humanity and, and select, you know, it's, it's, it's so powerful. And I've had a lot of old friends, quite frankly, who are Ukrainian or who really are invested in what's been happening in Russia and Ukraine and are very angry with me. And they, they seem to see my pointing out these double standards, despite also raising money and attention for what's happening in Ukraine to the Ukrainian people. They, they kind of see it as like a zero sum game. It's like mutually exclusive. Like if I'm going to put shine light on Israeli hypocrisy, Western hypocrisy, you know, people lining up to, and congressmen saying boycott, divestment and sanctions is effective on Russia. Like if I criticize those things, they see that as somehow like I don't believe in the Ukrainian right to like, you know, to, to, to resist. And, and it's just it's quite the opposite, actually. 
Yeah, and it's also quite the opposite, this, this statement, right? The threat we face is the same, the destruction of a people. Like, I know that's, the, that's a narrative, but that's not the reality on the ground in Israel and Palestine, like, you know? Um, so, so it's crazy. It's wild to see how things can be kind of co-opted. And so I've been trying to, in my own ways, using social media, but also like, yeah, I think it's important and it's incumbent upon all of us, like whether through comedy or podcasts or journalism or what have you to just kind of like take a moment and be like, well, if, if you can have this much motivation to do it and you can see it as right and, you know, then why not in this situation? So. Yeah, Ukrainians are going hard on anybody who points out that there might be Nazis among their ranks. Yeah. You know, and then if you're not like filling up Molotov cocktails yourself, they're like, you don't care about Ukraine. <laughs> yeah, Dude. it's wild. Um, I mean, yeah, I, I also think like you saw with Vogue what happened with Gigi, right? Sure. She got erased just like our podcast got deleted off the Internet. Exactly. And yep. it was around the same time, I remember. And, and quite frankly, I sent... When your podcast came back up, I took a screenshot and I sent it to like some people I was talking to at the public policy team at Meta or Instagram because, yeah, there's just really no explanation for the double standards and, and sort of what they explained to me was really interesting, but it was very much like a convenient argument of like, yeah, well, this is inciting violence. Like if you say Palestinians should be free from the river to the sea, you're inciting violence, but you're going to change your hate speech policies so that I can call for the assassination of Russian people. And that's all good. But it's just like, you know, it's, it's a very odd moment we're living in, you know, where the select, the selectivity on like empathy and dignity and who deserves it is just not just in the Palestinian context. It's, it's just mind blowing, like more than it's ever been. You spoke yeah, to somebody yeah. from meta Facebook and they said that like some of the deletion of Palestinian content was due to the content itself? Yeah. So, for example, what they explained to me is like when I would get shadow banned on my stories, when I would be posting about Palestine or I'd see other people doing it, they'd say those are like soft measures where the algorithm is self-correcting, right? So the algorithm is seeing something that is categorized, that it should be deprioritized from people's feeds, from timelines. But then there's this like hard measure, right, which is where we've seen like just accounts go be taken down or suspended. And those largely happen as a result of like violations of the terms, like most often inciting violence. And then we got into this very like meta conversation about, okay, so like, I know, and they, like the reason that Facebook was created is to be an entertainment. It's not about like documenting human rights. I'm like, okay, well, People are using your platforms in this way. So you're saying documenting an Israeli soldier beating a child is inciting violence because I'm documenting an act of violence, but the act of violence itself is going going on with impunity. Like there's no accountability for the act of violence, but the person who reports it on your platform is now going to be held accountable for reporting it. And that's where they're where the conversation went. And so it was very Discombi I was very left very discombobulated, but also a little bit disheartened because, yeah, it's yeah. important. These these platforms and this podcast and, you know, the way we can publish, it's so important. That's extremely interesting because we spoke to representatives from Facebook, Meta, Instagram, whatever they want to call themselves. And they said to us, our account wasn't flagged because of our content, that our account disappeared because... Lara and I, I thought people reported it. No, they, they said that it we wasn't didn't reported. Know. We didn't know initially, but then they told us that it was for a different reason, that it was for data scraping. 
Yeah, they said, and also, or it was either data scraping or the fact that we had dual logins, so we had logged in at the same time, which triggered yeah, I've us. Heard that no, no, I've yeah, it's which an apparently excuse. logging what, in at the you, same time is like, like they, a feature of but, data scraping or something. But data scraping, you mean like an extract, like you're extracting yeah. data. Well, that's interesting that you say that, Ahmed, because I didn't even know what data scraping was. And when the meta representative was like, we just found out that your account was deleted for data scraping. I said, I'm so sorry, but I don't know what that is. And yeah. I'm certainly not tech savvy enough to be able to do it. And neither is Michael. And so they were like, oh, the the algorithm must have just flagged your account for data scraping because you guys have, you know, you were logged in at the same time using the account and then it just got stuck and it never like reactivated. I'm, I'm assuming data scraping is like when you use those like third-party tools to like up your followers or do automatic yeah we don't things. do any of that yeah the only obviously asking, like we didn't buy followers <laughs> like we have organic followers no no i mean I I, I I i don't know i've heard so many different excuses be given for as to why things disappear or things don't populate or things get you know flagged with like a, a like a protective like warning or, right um and you know i guess it's better to be in on the conversation with them than just to be like but but you know i appreciate yeah i prefer they lie to my see. face that's what i like you know i don't like to hear it from yeah, behind being lied to <laughs> well no, but, they yeah. reached out like i tweeted they reached out which felt like any, anyway i think well, thank you it all it no i think it really highlights the need for like People and that's why there's some initiatives within Palestine I think are so critical where they're like actually documenting these sort of things like when it happened after the summer and there's a lot of like it's easy to 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 feel and God knows I've felt this way in the past that it's it's futile to even take a screenshot or write something up about it or complain because it can feel just to use the David and Goliath thing like you're up against these like people with incredible resources and who are you and you know but but that's how that's how you lose and that's how you get silenced and that's how you get censored. And so, yeah. It's well, I will tell you, Ahmed, I don't think it is futile at all because we know for a fact that the reason why the Instagram person uh, mm -hmm. was able to work to reinstate our account was because in parallel to us working through Palestine legal to get their attention at Meta, the Instagram person had actually seen on Instagram our complaints about our account being mm -hmm. deleted from our own personal accounts. And, yeah, you know, yeah. the, the, the sort of campaign that we had launched with, you know, our followers tagging Instagram and saying, bring mm -hmm. back the Palestine pod and all of this. I do think that, it, you know, these companies are enormous and it's like the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing. Mm -hmm. And then there's like thousands right. of people that work for them. And so you talk to right. someone, you get, you get an explanation, you talk to someone else, yeah. you get a different yeah. explanation and yeah. it's probably a little bit of everything, but also definitely censorship yeah. of Palestinian content. And like, maybe there yeah. are technical issues as well, but everything I mean, combined. Let's, let's not forget just to, just for context, Social media platforms are profit-making entities. You know, they're vulnerable to different kinds of political pressure. And we've seen, like, 
former police chiefs who have been, you know, work in Israel now on the board that's yeah. supposed to do oversight for Facebook. I mean, yeah. there are conflicts of interest, but I think the Palestinian issue really gets to the heart of censorship on social media platforms in such a powerful way that in a way it's it's an it's an opportunity when these things happen. You know, when when the Kurds and others and, and activists on the ground gain such a big following and that you can tell that there's a hunger out there and then we see the censorship start happening and then there's pushback from within the companies, even from Jewish employees and then there's like, you know, unity and there's this happening in Israel while this is happening in the States. Like, you know, these things are really disheartening. They're exhausting to constantly be up against and when they happen to you, they're frustrating, like I'm sure you can attest to. But, you know, when we see like hundreds of employees at like Google and Apple calling on their respective CEOs to condemn the violence and and like writing these you know hundreds of Facebook employees with this internal letter to stop censoring Palestinian voices. That petition that I'm referring to, just for example, like was enough to force Instagram to actually make slight changes to their algorithm. These ideas of words like martyr and resistance uh, in Arabic or in English, which are used in reference to the Palestinian struggle, were, were deemed incitements to violence according to the algorithm, like from an AI perspective, from what I understood. And so that, that was changed. Content relating to anything related to Al-Aqsa, you know, right. was was flagged. And and that's so inherently problematic when that's exactly what Israel was was doing in, at, before the whole Gaza war thing, which is like right. very like palatable for the media. They were doing all this other stuff, which was being censored. So, you know, I think it's it's always easy to like lament the, how big these companies are and also like how big Israel is and how big the lobby that keeps Zionism in power is in Congress. And I hate to speak so freely, but like on the flip side, it's encouraging to see the small wins. I think they should be celebrated. Oh, man, there's so much here. And, you know, one of the things we told the representatives that we had a Zoom call with was that you do mm -hmm. not have the trust of the user. It's really, you know, yeah, it's really great that today you're coming to me with an excuse about data scraping and you're talking about like how like the mm -hmm. algorithm is faulty and you're making changes and you're working to better it. But just as you said, Ahmed, like we all read mm -hmm. the same reports yeah. from, you know, Politico and The Intercept and yeah. other news organizations that talk about, you know, partnerships with the Israeli government and, you yeah, know, yeah. The, the placement yeah. of like high level Israeli government officials, former government officials on the censorship mm -hmm. board, you know, of, mm -hmm. of, of Meta. Mm -hmm. And they came back to us and they were like, well, you know, let's just be re like, let's just take it step by step. And, you know, with respect to that, Yes, it's true that we do have channels of communication open with the Israeli government, but we also have channels of communication open with all governments. It's just yeah. that the Israeli government is doing the work yeah, of the Zionist yeah. activists, whereas the PA yeah. is not doing the work yeah. of Palestinian yeah. activists. Exactly. So they told well, and, me, they were like, well, now we're working to build these relationships with the grassroots right. and like talking to you guys right. as part of that as well mm -hmm. to see how yeah. we can do better. And I'm like, great. Like, let's just, no, no. And, and, I would I, love I to see it. There's a lot to be said about that, though. Like, you know, they they say it and it can sound like an excuse, but like there's no secret that the Israeli government has an entire operation where they flag so much content. And that's why, like, you know, Facebook complies with like 95 percent, I think, of Israeli requests for like yes. content to be taken down because of like their defense. When I brought that up to them and, and you know, there's some truth to it is like, well, if Israel's flagging like infinitely more content than any other government and you're you're operating at 95 percent like you know then that's really 
that's a lot of content that's being censored, right? And and to your point, like when trust in social media companies is so low and all sides of the political spectrum are kind of finding faults in how these companies handle user content, what is the purpose behind these companies at the end of the day? How do they see themselves? What is their purpose? What's their function? Uh, the fact that major platforms like Instagram had to publicly confirm their bias in, in the algorithm when it comes to Israel and Palestine. And that we saw, like you said, the Intercept like obtained that secret Facebook memo that they talked about how the term Zionist was moderated. I think it's 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 important this stuff comes out. So like no longer is there content like, you know, this idea of pressuring like New York Times or like the Israel PR machine being so powerful. I don't think it is as powerful as it once was. And I think in a lot of ways, Ukraine is helping kind of point that out. Yeah, they're in utter and complete disarray every day. It used to be we felt we were on the ropes. We'd wake up, you know, our account would be blah, 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 like, you know, just somebody else, some news story broke. But now every day they have meltdowns and we get mm -hmm. to witness it. Speaking specifically about our account, though, their yeah. excuse that we logged in at the exact same time makes zero sense because Lara and I were on completely different time zones. I was in Thailand. She was in the United States. We were barely awake at the same time. You know what I mean? It makes we, like, no. Barely could, we barely could record a podcast at the same time. Like every <laughs> had, time was like inconvenient for both of us. We had to schedule it like days in, in advance. So there is literally no chance we were both on the same social yeah. at the same time. But, you know, even if we were, we're yeah. not the only people to have a social media page that's managed by multiple people. That's not yeah. unique mm -hmm. to us, you know? Mm -hmm. And... It, it, to me, it just it felt like there was something really faulty with with their process. Like, okay, if, mm -hmm. if it is for this technical reason, then then mm -hmm. you're there's something wrong with your company because it's flagging the wrong thing. And if it is not because it's, you know, mm -hmm. just a technical error, and if it is for content reasons, well, then there's something wrong with your company because you're censoring content that should not be censored, that yeah, people yeah. have a right to know about. And you know, to your point, Ahmed, the the thing that is absolutely insane and that I, I, I told the Electronic Intifada in an article that's hopefully coming out soon is that mm -hmm. surely Instagram's policies about violence and hate speech cannot be intended to censor victims of violence and hate speech from sharing what is happening to them. There is a difference uh, between calling for violence and using hate speech well, and yeah. saying, hi, this is happening to me and I am, I am sharing what is happening to me. Well, well, I think, and again, that's ideally true, but I can tell you that in my experience in the media context, I don't know that that's true. There has been a criminalization of Palestinians' right to demand the right to live in freedom and dignity, because this whole thing of from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. If you listen to those words, at no point does it discuss Jewish people, Israel, Zionism, any of these sensitive terminologies, which of course I understand where the sensitivities come from, but the way it's tossed around, the way in which people fire people for using that term when Bella Hadid like sang it back in the summer, how polarizing that was. And, and, and why is that? It's because there's this perception that if you're calling for Palestinians to be free human beings or to live a life of dignity, basic human rights, then that's somehow anti-Semitic or erasing Israel or calling for the destruction of Israel. Like the way in which 
over decades that those equations have been implied strategically and effectively, I think has has bled into the algorithms, the way in which they're defended. I don't know if I'm like making sense. I know it might seem like a small point, but but yeah, I mean, we've seen time and time again how how people have been humanized and lost a lot of things just for simply no, focusing. Yeah. yeah. I think it definitely makes sense. And I think, you know, back on this point of, well, who decides what resistance is legitimate? And is it international law? Because if it is international law, then Palestinians have a right to resist a, a military occupation under international law. That's what international law says. So who, if, if it's not international law, then what standards are we applying? And are are they arbitrary subjective standards that are just sort of like the whims of like the creators of these apps mm-hmm. and the, the forces that they, you know, mm-hmm. work with? I would argue that it should be, we should be guided by international law because that's what the world has agreed is the relevant standard in this situation. Occupation no, right. is is a product of international law. It is a creature of international law and the rules surrounding it and when it's legal and when it's illegal and what you can do to resist mm-hmm. it. This is all within the scheme of international law. So the reason that's why it matters that yeah. Palestinian resistance is criminalized and Ukrainian right. resistance is celebrated and encouraged yeah. because in both scenarios under under international law, I, these people have a right to resist. Yeah, I, I think what's what's so quite frankly, painful. What drives me the most mad is this idea that if you if you advocate for Palestinian rights in any context, you are guaranteed to be questioned, right? But it's not just that they're celebrating and encouraging resistance in Ukraine. It's the willingness and the speed with which they glorify it. And I don't know if it's just about the narrative of Russia versus the West, Western hegemony, or if that they're white people. I mean, I think there's a lot of compounding factors. But again, that's why I think whether it's Palestine, Kashmir, Yemen, Syria, there's so many groups of people who who now, because of what's happening in Ukraine, it's just that much more glaring how little the world pays attention to, or let alone holds them accountable or like, you know, takes swift actions to like sanction them. So yeah, it's, it's exhausting. And I think it's a, it's a, it's a very peculiar moment, like in the, in the human rights space, like it's, it's, it's gonna, I think it's gonna be a milestone. I think the lesson we've learned is that if you want to resist occupation, first be white and secondly, be civilized. So when you're throwing your Molotov cocktail, keep a pinky up. That's just a champagne. Yes. If we think of what is the purpose, like here's a question to entertain. What's the purpose of Israel's system of apartheid? Like, why does it exist? And I think a question that is not asked often enough. Yeah, because because I think, you know, apartheid is pretty shitty for everyone involved. Obviously, like different for the, the the victim versus the you know the perpetrator, but but to me, it's very simple. The intent is is to maintain Jewish hegemony, demographic hegemony. And, and, and that is what you could describe the Zionist movement to be, right? And they focus very much on this idea of achieving a Jewish majority and maximum control of the land. And so if the intent is, is maintained, if that intent is maintained through systematic human rights violations, which, as you said, under international law, that's including like forcibly removing people, displacement, and all these other coercive 
environments. Like it, it's very simple, you know, if you look at it in that lens. Unfortunately, for all the reasons we've all talked about, this kind of system of oppression and domination that's so obvious if you're on the ground and to us and to many others, uh, which, you know, Amnesty and many other human rights organizations has said amounts to apartheid. It's it's very simple and very obvious. It's just that's what makes it so frustrating. You remember when uh, when Ned Price was asked, what about Palestinians? Do they have a right to resist? And he just kind of like bumbled and was like, oh, well, mm-hmm. you know, uh, the situation is evolving very quickly. And he wouldn't mm-hmm. flat out say that Palestinians have a right to resist. And you yeah. contrast that with mm-hmm. the exact same scene. But I think her, what is her name? Jen something. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Where she's being asked about, you know, what is the the U.S. position on Ukrainian resistance? And she's there like, well, we are with them and we are honoring their bravery and we we love them and we are supporting them. And it's like the law is not different, people. Yeah. Like, why, why, why does Ned Price say the situation is evolving? And I don't want to, I don't want to make any comments about an evolving situation. That doesn't mean anything. That's a, it's just an answer that doesn't mean anything, you know. And it just to me, it's like. Yes, double standards, yes, hypocrisy, all of that. But it's also just the arbitrariness with which Mm -hmm. you are going to actually apply the law. And if Mm -hmm. the law is applied in an arbitrary manner, then you don't have the you don't have a system of law at all. You just have total chaos. Well, and and not that it's a law, but just to take another example and circle back, like we're looking at Facebook changing its laws, right? The laws that govern its platform, like its terms of, of you know, changing hate speech in the context of Russia and Ukraine to tolerate hate speech against Russian right. Russians to call for their assassination. I mean, I don't want to keep beleaguering the point, but like it speaks to the exact point you were making. Like they're treating this context and Russia invading Ukraine and occupying parts of Ukraine and, you know, and they're treating it in such a different way for many reasons that it do involve how international laws, uh, you know, treated and how we treat people who have brown skin or white skin when they choose to resist. And so, yeah, I always wonder like, okay, I always like, sometimes I'm in the shower. I'm like, okay, so let's assume Russia actually took control of Ukraine. Like they started the occupation. It's a full occupation of the country. Very unlikely. Let's hope that that happens. But if that were to happen, like, because the world's still going to hold Russia accountable, they're still going to, like, try to increase these sanctions. It's just, like, Ukraine and Russia are not, is not the same as Israel and Palestine, obviously. But to distract from where there are similarities and how the reaction is so different despite those similarities, I think it's just, like, what that guy, I think I included it in one of my posts, like, some random dude on Twitter was like, people who hear, like, genocide of Jews when what was said was freedom for Palestinians are really just telling on themselves. Like, you know, it's because it's like not everybody's idea of freedom. And I, I'm sorry if I'm speaking too casually, but like involves the expulsion or ethnic cleansing or extermination, whatever word you want to use, of another group of people. Obviously, that becomes sensitive because of the tragedy of the Holocaust. But to, to pretend that that tragedy is not factoring into the discourse in Ukraine and Russia, I think is also a disservice. And so it's, it's just really disheartening that these cycles of violence continue. <laughs> like, what else can you say? I also think about Russia in the shower. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, that, that means a lot to me that you admitted that, even if you're making it up. Because I oftentimes I'm like, why am I like... I just be scrubbing away. You know what I mean? I'm like, Putin's having trouble holding territory. (laughs) 
this his strategy is flawed. Or like Hillary Clinton, like tweeting, like if Russian leadership would rather not be accused of committing war crimes, they should stop bombing hospitals. I mean, really? Like, it's like, just, it's oh. too easy. You know? It's nice like that she could take time away from creating a slave market in Libya to say that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, she's trying to, you know, diversify. Took her foot off Haiti's neck for a second. Yeah, man. Well, I I feel like this is my favorite Palestine. Uh, By the way, have you guys had politicians on? No. We had Nkosi Mandela. Okay. So, yeah, it was South African politician. (laughs) But but other than that, no. I was thinking about reaching out to Richard Boyd. He had a video in, like, the Irish... Uh, Congress. Oh that yeah, went that one. That viral. one that went sort of viral a couple yeah. weeks ago. Yeah, he'd yeah. be great. He always Why do you is ask? fiery. And I asked just because I was listening to the Daily, uh, which I I never do, <laughs> but I was um, because there was a special on Rashida Tlaib, um, and I I just it really I sometimes like don't realize how I don't know like her situation must be really tough. Like, I'm just trying to empathize with her reality because, you know, we all live it in a version. Even you, I'm sure, in France. Like, I don't know. It's like, you know, people are prejudiced in all sorts of situations or they have preconceived notions of what it means to be Palestinian, what, you know, you have to wear it. But, yeah, I just thought it'd be cool if you had someone like like her on. Oh, I would love to have her on. I feel like she should. She should. I should. We would love to have her on if you know her. (laughs) I'm sure she's a fan of the pod, you know? Feel free to connect us. We would love to. One day, I'm sure you will have her on because she keeps it real. Yeah. Yeah. Did like an Instagram thing with her once and once interviewed her at HA. And she's just so real. I think it's cool to see just so many new Palestinian. Yeah like leaders and and visionaries so many different fields in so many different fields and there is something really inspiring about like this generation of palestinians that are in the grassroots we're separate from our you know government or you know in in palestine if you can even call it government right yeah yeah but we've kind of just like said fuck it and everybody's doing their own thing whether they're in palestine or abroad and 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 making waves like creating spaces yeah. for us and i think it's really cool and i think one of the coolest things you were talking about Mohammed al-kurd one of the coolest things about him is that he shows you that you can be yeah 100 unapologetic but also not separate from spaces like the un yeah, yeah. like to me that that was so perfect because it was like he is an activist in the rawest sense because he's literally like defending his house with his body but 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 that's where that's where not but and that's where i think him and one up i really hate to like attribute so much attention to that in this same but yeah in the moment of this summer but the reason i do do it is because it's impossible to deny like the the just this, whatever you want to call it, serendipity, the circumstances with which their platforms were being like megaphones for weeks on end. And it's not just them, you know, it's nodes, right? To your point. But they were central nodes, one in English, one in Arabic. And 
she's as eloquent in Arabic as he is in English. And they're twins. And I think it's, you know, everyone loves like that kind of a story. Yeah, everybody loves um, a twin story. <laughs> everyone loves a twin story. Like, where's my twin? Um, but um, yeah, no, I mean, I, that, I'll, I'm not going to lie. Like, I remember watching Muhammad and then watching Mona and then like being called by your own news and then like getting ready. But like, I think my dog had just died. So I was like in a really dark place already. Aww. And I was like mourning her loss and then Palestine happened. And then I just like, when I went live, I was like, you know what? I'm just going to do what they did. Like, I'm, I'm just not going to hold back. And like, you know, sometimes when you're in alignment, whether it's inspired by other people or not, it's hit a right zone and yes. you connect, you know? And I think what you're describing is, yeah, there's so many grassroots people connecting with other people, new audiences connecting with each other. And it's encour it's encouraging. It's a beautiful thing. Stage. Yeah, it really is. And just an observation about Mohammed al Kurd at the UN and sort of like the double standards that exist when we're talking about Ukraine versus Palestine, the outfit that Mohammed Okurd chose yeah. to wear. He wore like a leather jacket, no tie, and was wildly criticized by talking heads on literally every station. But then Zelensky shows up to talk in a tracksuit and everybody's like, what a superstar this guy is. Yeah. He keeps it real. You know what I'm saying? It's like he keeps it so real that when he got his vaccination, <laughs> he felt the need to take off his entire shirt and just like flex while he was getting vaccinated. <laughs> you got to give him the gun show, even when you're getting guns sent yeah. to you by the U.S. Yeah, yeah. No, Muhammad definitely rolled into the U.N. and I would say gave them the uh, respect they deserve. He was very nonchalant, unimpressed, and like, yeah. I'm just here. Why should he be you. impressed? But, Why but, should but, he be impressed? Like they, well, they I mean, like they are so central to. That's what these institutions like. Um, that's how they define themselves, right? It's right. all about that prestige. Pomp and, yeah, prestige. Pomp and, and circumstance. Like, yeah, pop, pomp and circumstance. He just walked in there, and I, I forget what the like snarky remark was. It was like, okay. "Thank you for your very impassioned speeches. I'm sure the yeah, occupation yeah. is quivering in its boots yeah. right now." Yeah, that's yeah. what it was. <laughs> That's what it was. And then and then he just continued without like even a beat. It was so mm -hmm. brilliant. Yeah, he's so dope. Yeah, yeah he knows what's up. He's doing it love right, it. I think. Well, send 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 him our, our best wishes. I'd love to see what, what you're doing now and what you're gonna keep doing. I think it's a good place yeah. to, to end, Michael, unless you yeah. have any last minute. No, thought. totally. Tell him about the podcast. We'd love to have it. <laughs> yeah, no, I will. That's uh, another episode of the Palestine Pod. Thank you all so much <laughs> for listening. Thank you so much to our guest, Ahmed. Appreciate your stories, your perspective, all the work that you're doing. And we thank you so much to our listeners. Go ahead and check us out, www.palestinepod.com. We will upload our sources expeditiously as best <laughs> we can. And check us out on Instagram. WW oh wait, not, I'm not gonna do the whole Instagram. Uh Instagram is <laughs> at, say Instagram dot com. Yeah, yeah. You guys know what the what the HTTP is. <laughs> you guys know how to get there, right? <laughs> the Palestine Pod on Instagram. Find, send us an email at palestinepod at gmail.com and find us on Patreon, www.patreon.com slash Palestine Pod. That's been another episode of the Palestine Pod. Thank you all so much for listening. Have a great day. Star Pod.